Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And happy Valentine's Day. And if you're listening after Valentine's Day, we want you to know that we still love you for listening. This week, we head out to Elko to hear some music from the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering, which starts every year at the end of January. Later in the show, we head a few hours west to the Sheldon Antelope Refuge to learn about efforts to rehabilitate the antelope's natural habitat. And then we fly across the country to D.C. to hear about the State of the Union and more from our D.C. reporter, Gabby Bierenbaum. I see in the rocks and the rills Fox and the blackbird are crying aloud But they're not in pain They're simply singing 290 miles east of Reno and 230 miles west of Salt Lake City, the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering in Elko, Nevada started in the mid-80s. In its nearly 40-year lifespan, the event has grown and changed. In 2020, the gathering happened just before the country shut down that was brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic. But in 2021 and 2022, there was no in-person event. And it wasn't until 2023 that the event returned in full swing. Devin Blunden has been working the gathering every year it's been in person since 2010. It was a blast. I was just the young dude who knew how to plug the stuff in and hit the right buttons. And all of a sudden, dude, it's 2023 and I'm a less young dude who knows how to plug the stuff in. And now there's a, a lot more technology. They've advanced immensely. So the gathering happened online during the COVID years, 2021 and 2022. And Devin explains to me the feeling of being back in Elko at the gathering here in 2023. This was a banner year, dude. People are hungry, man. People didn't get to do this thing. And for some people, it's the one consistent thing they do every year. There were tons of people. Every seat was filled because people were just ready. They missed it. It's a part of people's lives. She hadn't heard what someone had to say. I'm out of tune, I know. It's this elevation that's I sat down with one of the performers who was performing at the gathering in person live for the first time. I'm interested in those places where the weirdness comes out, where people push boundaries of what's expected of them. And I think that's very possible in the cowboy poetry gathering. That was Avery Hellman, who goes by the stage name Ismay. They were telling me how they first learned about the gathering after stumbling across the cultural center that hosts the event in Elko. My familiarity with the Cowboy Poetry Gathering goes back to when I was in my early 20s, which is about 10 years ago. And I was driving across Nevada for the first time by myself, you know, across Highway 50. And then I went up through Elko and I just kind of stopped for a rest during the day. I happened upon the Western Folklife Center and I was just so taken with the Western Folklife Center. I had never heard about the Cowboy Poetry Gathering. And at that time, I was sort of figuring out who I was going to be. And I saw this video that was in the back of the gallery called Why the Cowboy Sings or something. And it was the profile of a cowboy and his family who lived in the Great Basin, kind of on a ranch, a remote ranch. And I was just like, I didn't really know who I wanted to be. And that was the first time I was like, that's who I want to be with my life. So Avery attended the gathering for the first time in 2017 but just as an attendee and not as a performer. In 2021, they were asked to be part of the online version of the gathering, though. I had one of my friends come to the ranch in Petaluma 
my family's ranch, do film us performing a few songs and doing a day of shearing actually with our Navajo churro sheep. So we kind of did a nice little mix of things. And then that got to be shown at the online version of the Poetry Gathering in 21. One of the amazing things about the online year was that you actually got to see people in their home. Instead of them coming to Elko, you got to see footage of them at their ranch. That whole Western rural way of life is such a key part of the gathering. So one thing that you may notice when talking about this event is that it's never referred to as a festival, but only as a gathering. Devin explains why that is. So the term festival gets thrown around. It is not a festival. That's why it's the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering. Don't use the F word, Elko. It's not that one because it is a community. It's not you pay for a ticket and watch a show and that's it. You know, you never know who you're going to run into because somebody might step off a stage and then just sit right next to you and then ask you a question. It's not pretentious. You never know who you're going to be knocking back a buckaroo brew with at the Pioneer Saloon at the end of the day. And there's a good chance it's probably going to be somebody that you saw up on stage earlier that day. When talking to Avery, I talked to them before and after the gathering. Here's what they said before they performed. I'm really hoping that given that I've been there once when I didn't know anybody and then I did a thing online, that this is an opportunity this year to actually get to talk and build relationships with people. I'm definitely a little bit nervous about the level of acceptance of my, you know, more alternative kind of music. I think when it comes to being alternative in any community, in any context, you're going to find your people that get it. You're going to find the people that they've never heard something like that and they're going to be confused, but maybe it'll be amazing to them. There was a time Here's what they said after their performance. I was there for, yeah, I guess it was about five days and I did four shows and then I also helped host an open mic and a podcast, a live podcast. So it was thrilling and exhausting and fascinating. I really thought nobody was, hardly anybody was going to show up. I was like, oh, maybe there'll be 10 people. Maybe there'll be 20 people. Like nobody really knows who I am and I'm new to this. But I got on the stage and the room was mostly full. Almost every chair had somebody in it, which was thrilling for me. So many people came up and said how much they liked it and how it was so different. I think that over the years, I've been able to find a way to do something that's my own sound, but it's still unique and still connected to that tradition enough that it's relatable for people. And that's a big part of the gathering. It's deeply rooted in community and tradition, but it also has to change. Without that change, without those younger voices, the audience will age and eventually there will be no one to take on that mantle. And so the gathering actually has changed and it's grown. But this thing started in 1985. They had no idea where it was going to go. I have had the immense pleasure just because of the age I was when I started there, 22. I'm 36 now to be part of the younger generation, so to speak, that before was not as represented on the stages, there are performers who've grown up at the gathering performing, and that's super cool, but they were a smaller cohort. The folks that run it knew that it had to expand and get younger if it were going to continue from generation to generation to generation. 
And it was a major effort and it paid off massively. And that change was seen by Avery when they performed at the gathering this year. There's even more people there than there ever have been. It's gaining popularity. It's amazing. You kind of think that, okay, cowboy poetry is this thing that was invented like 1800 to like 1940 and that it's over and all the people who are doing it are people who used to be alive when it was a thing. <laughs> and now it's over. <laughs> but there's younger people, younger than me even, you know, in their, in their 20s and their 30s that are just totally embracing the tradition. You know, when you got, you got somebody with gauged ears and purple hair spinning the yarn to an old guy with a twirled mustache and a giant hat, then side swap. You don't see that everywhere, but you see it in Elko during the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering. One of the reasons that the gathering has changed and attracted new demographics while still holding on to that tradition is because of the way that it's run. Devin explained more of that to me. The current director, Kristen Winn-Bigler, came onto the scene. She ushered in massive, sweeping change. Her background is with TED Talks and running tech and whatnot. So she brought a perspective at a level of experience and just vision for the future that was just never before imagined in Elko. It's a completely modern event. There's a beautiful sort of not quite irony, but juxtaposition there because it is a fully modern event, but in a town that loves its rural and buckaroo roots, specifically to share a subculture that is so rooted in heritage. So this is something that's really fascinating to me and is something that I've been striving to convey with this podcast since its inception. The culture of Nevada, of the West, of rural America. Nevada is the state with the highest percentage of its population living in urban centers. But the culture of the state is so deeply influenced by the rural lifestyle. A lot of young people want, just crave something to be connected to. I've got pals that fly in from New York and Alaska and Portland and Seattle to come to the gathering. People who I think feel really inspired to have a sort of cultural tradition they can be part of that has a more of a longevity to it and a culture they can connect with, regardless of whether they grew up with it or not. As a young person myself in Nevada, I know I've at times struggled to find that community and voice. This is something I've seen in a lot of young people here. I'm sure that older generations will also tell me that when they were young, they too were striving to find those communities. As the cowboy poetry community ages, the gathering is a way for them to welcome in that next generation. If you're going to that immediate human experience where you're both sharing an emotion from hearing a song or a melody or the words of a poem, and you're sitting next to each other, swapping hankies, you don't have time to worry about the debt ceiling or a conspiracy theory or wokeness or whatever is is getting somebody's goat that day. And that's really cool. And I think that in, in that way, the gathering is sort of a bastion of just cohesion and coming together to enjoy something that unites us. For people my age, our parents kind of wanted us to live in a more suburban sort of non-attached existence, a sort of 
well, you don't have a culture, you don't have anything, you can be whatever you want. But then so many people my age struggle with who am I? Like, what am I? I'm not a part of anything. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. And I think the cowboy culture gives the opportunity for younger people, whether or not they grew up in it, to be something. As rivers go dry, run ground. Ceasing their sound, they are whispering still. Though singing does wane, they're always praising your name This piece was reported, produced, and edited by me, Joey Lovato. If you want to hear more of Avery's music, you can find them on Spotify by searching Ismay, I-S-M-A-Y. Ismay also contributed some music to this piece. Well, from cowboy poetry to one of the places they write poetry about, we're headed north of Reno, a few hours to the Sheldon National Antelope Refuge, where we're going to learn about efforts to protect and rehabilitate the land. That's right, Jacob. Reporter Richie Bednarski talked to me about his reporting on those efforts, and we'll hear more from him now. All right, well, I am here with reporter Richie Bednarski, and you reported on a story on the, the Sheldon Antelope Range for us, mm-hmm. all about fence removal and, 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 and kind of efforts to, to help out the wildlife that's up there. So thanks for joining me on the podcast. Of course, I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Yeah. So to start out, just tell me a little bit about the Sheldon Antelope Range. Where is it in Nevada? What is it? Yeah, so it's on the far northern border with Oregon, kind of on the northwest corner of the state. It's about 900 square miles It's a wildlife refuge, so it's managed by the National Wildlife Service. And basically, it exists for the sole purpose of preserving habitat for the pronghorn antelope, which is the last of the family uh, in that species. Populations have kind of fluctuated, but pre-1800s, they were probably close to 20 million Mm -hmm. individual animals. But since barbed wire fences came and overhunting as well, Mm -hmm. populations plummeted in the early 1900s. So there's been a lot of work in the past hundred years kind of reviving those populations. Okay. Is there like a, a concern about their their populations at this point? They're just kind of one of those last big majestic animals of North America. Historically, 10,000, 20,000 years ago, North America used to have a lot of megafauna, saber-toothed tiger, dire wolves, cave bears, mammoths, mastodons. So antelopes are kind of one of the last few remaining of that kind of megafauna. So they're not endangered, but with the populations dwindling so drastically over the last 100 years, there was cause of initial concern. Sure, yeah, yeah. And so this project is to remove fencing. Why is removing fencing helping the antelope? So antelope, uh, pronghorn antelope were bred to run. They evolved with the American cheetah. So they're the fastest land mammal in North America. They can sustain speeds of 60 miles an hour. Because of that, their bones are really light. They've evolved to run and be fast on their feet. When they come across the fence... You can imagine that's kind of going to put a roadblock in their plan. They're not evolved to jump. So when they do, it's ugly. And chances are they'll get caught in those strands of the fencing and trapped. And then they have to just sit there until they die. So getting those fences out of there allows them to kind of have that free roaming space. Fences kind of fragment their habitat, which makes them easier to fall prey to cougars, coyotes, and bobcats. So basically two reasons. It fragments their their habitat so they can't migrate as much because they're a migratory animal and then is fatal to them when they try to jump it if they get their feet caught up in it. And, and they share this, this the range with like a lot of other animals, right? And, and a lot of important animals for the region too. 
Yeah, so in the Sheldon Wildlife Refuge, there's about 160 other animals, a few of our dimension, but notably this, the sage grouse. That's one of the big ones because they cohabitate in the same sagebrush ecosystem, the sagebrush steppe. One thing biologists kind of look for are umbrella species, and that's what the antelope is. And the reason being because it has such a broad and wide expansive habitat, if their habitat is intact, other species under that will also have intact habitat, such as the sage grouse. So where, where do these fences come from? Are these modern fences? Are we talking like chain link fences or we're, we're talking like posts and barbed wire, right, for the most yep. part? Yeah. So these are old fences that have spurred up in the past hundred years, all the way since the area was initially inhabited uh, by settlers that came across and started subdividing the landscape with fences to basically manage their cattle. And there's a bunch of historical ranches on the refuge, and a lot of the old structures are still there, stone houses. The CCC built a handful of cabins. What's the CCC? Civilian Conservation Corps. One of the cabins actually is known as Little Sheldon. It's on the western side of the refuge. And that's where a lot of scientists and volunteers will stay while they're conducting research. Notably, there's been a lot of sage-grouse research based in the refuge, and they stayed at that cabin. So these fences, I don't know if you ever put up a barbed wire fence, but... Metal's heavy. The T-posts weigh seven to eight pounds a piece. The barbed wires and wound up spools, and it weighs 20 to 50 pounds, depending on the length of the wire on that spool. So putting them up is a lot of work. Secondly, taking them down is even more work because they've been there for years. You've got to unclip the wires, pry out the T-posts the with whatever elbow grease or brute force you have, and then you got to wind up the wires. So it's a lot of work. So once a fence is up, it kind of goes to the land managing agencies to, to just make decisions about those fences. Sure. So who's going out there right now and, and taking these fences down? Yeah, so right now, Friends of Nevada Wilderness, conservation group based here in Reno and down in Las Vegas, has been working pretty closely with the Fish and Wildlife Service and the refuge to go out and get these fences removed. And they've been utilizing AmeriCorps service members to do the work. So basically, young kids who kind of have that those energy levels and gumption to be unplugged away from everything for three months and spend the summer removing old fences. A lot of the fence came out over in the early part of the, the project. It's about 12 years now. And so now they're just finding like pockets of fence that they had no idea was, was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in your story, you were saying that they're, they're hiking out into like, you know, nowhere and like where you can't get a car or an ATV or anything. And so they're hiking into these these really remote places of, of northwestern Nevada. They're, they're pulling out these big wooden T-posts. They're spooling up this this barbed wire fence and then they got to hike out with it. So they're, they're, they must not be able to take out very much at a time. Right. No, nope, not at all. So they'll get pack frames kind of similar to what hunters will use in the backcountry, and then basically as safely as possible, lash up T-posts and the barbed wire fence, which they've coiled up because they have like a, a hand coil or that mm-hmm. kind of recoils the barbed wire fence so it can be reused. Okay. And then they'll, they'll pack it out and stage it on the road. And then later the in the season, they'll go by and collect them and then bring it all to the to the refuge headquarters or the, the Fish and Wildlife Service will come out if they have the time to pick up that material. Okay. So, I mean, this must be a really slow-going effort. I mean, how much have they removed since this project has started, and how much more are they thinking they want to remove? How much longer is this going to go on for? So, to date, they've removed, I think the the figure is 343 miles of barbed wire fence. Initially, the Fish and Wildlife Service, Brian Day, the refuge manager there, thought there was maybe 100 miles. They surpassed that within two or three years. And so now they're just finding pockets here and there. And he doesn't think there's more than five or 10 miles left. 
you know, horses and, 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 and cattle as well. Those were having pretty significant impacts to the region because they were, there was like overgrazing. And then do horses, wild horses and, and antelope, do they compete for similar food sources and stuff like that? They do. And kind of one of the biggest things about horses is that they went extinct in North America about twelve to 15,000 years ago. So since then, the Great Basin hasn't seen horses. They're not used to having horses. But there's now feral horses that have been reintroduced from miners, explorers, pioneers. Back in the recession, a bunch of people were just letting their horses go because they couldn't afford to keep them. Mm -hmm. But the thing horses do is they'll crowd out a spring source and keep antelope from getting to it. Tell me a little bit about the history of Sheldon Wild. How did it, how did it get designated as a wildlife refuge? You know, who owns the land right now? Who's who's managing it? Yeah, so the land is owned by America, the taxpayer. It's public. It's public land. It's managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for the for the protection of the pronghorn antelope. The land dates back. It's been occupied by the the northern Paiute for thousands of years. There's evidence of that up there that goes back ten, twelve thousand years. But about a hundred years ago. There was a, a biologist who was working for what is now the Fish and Wildlife Service. It, was, it wasn't really an official department with the government yet, uh, E.R. Sands. And he started noticing a kind of a decline in, in, in pronghorn populations. And this kind of raised the, some red flags with him. He was able to work with Charles Sheldon, who was also a huge advocate for wildlife and ex- exploration. He was a big hunter. He's most known for his kind of working towards getting Denali National Park established, but he also was a huge pronghorn fan. So together, they kind of started raising awareness and were able to just fundraise a lot of money, purchase a a chunk of land, and start kind of establishing some sort of protections for the area so that the antelope can thrive. And what that looked like is less less hunting, if any. They kind of just curtailed hunting because overhunting was a big problem, as we've seen with the bison, the American bison. And then it kind of just started gathering steam and eventually through a couple executive orders by President Hoover and President Roosevelt were able to establish the actual refuge and so now it's now it's managed by the Fish and Wildlife Service and currently they only have a handful of employees to manage 900 square miles so like most land managing agencies they're stretched really thin on what they can do budget wise and time wise so what's next now for this project? You said it's kind of coming to an end. Once they're done with this, are there other projects they're looking to do in the area? Almost 90% of the refuge itself qualifies for wilderness, and there's a couple wilderness study areas in there. So that could be the next push to, again, kind of get more protection for that area. I think the next phase will be looking at habitat rehabilitation projects around some springs. And then the dark skies up there are phenomenal. It's next to Massacre Rim International Dark Sky Sanctuary. And Friends of Nevada Wilderness wants to get the last of the fence out there removed. Cool. Well, is there anything else that you want to talk about from your story before we, uh, before we wrap up? If you haven't been there, definitely make it an opportunity to go up and see what, what this area is. Because it's unlike, it's what the Grace Basin should be and should look like. It's virtually intact, meaning there's very little invasive weeds. So it's a great kind of peek into what the Great Basin used to look like and could look like again. Be mindful of the roads. They're paved with obsidian, which is really sharp once it gets graded. Expect a flat tire or five. I've, I've been up there and I've gotten one flat tire in my four trips up there, but it's it's definitely easy to do. It, it's, it is. It's a beautiful area, and especially if you're out there at night, I mean, you can see the Milky Way with your naked eye if the moon's not up. Yeah, among, among other celestial objects, yeah. which is really cool. All right, well, Richie, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Absolutely, I appreciate the time. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I hope you haven't been distracted by balloons much, because the State of the Union was last week, and our own Gabby Birenbaum was there. Here's a conversation between her and Joey. I am here with our DC reporter, Gabby Birenbaum. Gabby, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a minute. Thank you. Yeah, excited to be back. Yeah. And so we always start with the weather when we're talking to someone across the country. How is the weather in D.C. on uh, February 10th when we're recording this? It has been so nice here. The last few days, I feel bad like saying that to you, but it's been <laughs> like 50s. I haven't even had to wear a coat the past few days. It's been really nice. Nice. Well, it's been it's been sunny here. It's actually been nice Ooh. in Reno, but it's been very cold, you know, in the, yeah. in the, the 30s and 40s. <laughs> <laughs> So you had a really big week this week. Well, we've had a big week here in Nevada with the start of the legislature. You've been busy reporting on the State of the Union from President Joe Biden. Kind of what were your big takeaways from it? Yeah, I mean, I thought overall, this is now his third. He gave a joint address. I mean, other than Ukraine stuff, but he gave a joint address at the beginning of his term. And that was really soon after January 6th. His first State of the Union in 2021 was when there was sort of a resurgence in COVID cases and his legislative agenda at the time was sort of on the rocks. I think he came into this one almost as a victory lap and pretty triumphant about several large bills that Democrats, in some cases in a bipartisan fashion, have able to pass Congress. And his message was basically that he's going to take the next two years. And I think the implication was a term after that to finish the job. That was like a phrase he used a lot. And now they've passed all these bills, Infrastructure, Inflation Reduction Act, Chips and Science, what have you. And now is the time to sort of implement that. And he painted a, a pretty rosy picture of the economy and sort of, I think, expanded on what he's trying to do economically. To me, it was sort of reminiscent of almost like a mid-century Democratic ideal, very like focused on union labor, focused on improving health care. It, it spoke to, I think, Biden's history as like a retail politician who's been in politics forever, who has that sort of old style Democrat feel of here's something tangible that you're going to see, you know, in your bills or, you know, in your roads, whatever it might be that Democrats are doing to help you. And then it also, I think, spoke to sort of more recent economic realities of competition with China, of the hollowing out of the middle class. A lot of the anxieties that I think Trump captured in 2016, I think Biden did a pretty effective job of speaking to those and talking about bringing back middle class jobs, reshoring industry and jobs that have moved to China, things like that. So overall, I thought it was a pretty strong message. He got back and forth with it on Republicans a few times with like, I think, varying levels of success. But I thought he did pretty well. And then Nevada Democrats definitely thought he did well. Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, what did the Nevada delegation think of his speech? I think they liked that it was very positive and very hopeful and optimistic. I think particularly Susie Lee and Jackie Rosen, both of whom are known as more bipartisan members and like to work with Republicans. I think they liked that he spoke to a lot of the bipartisan accomplishments. He had these sort of four main areas that he wants to continue working with Republicans on that most people agree on, you know, like cancer funding and ending the opioid epidemic and mental health things like that. So I think they liked that he that he called those out. And I think they liked that he spoke about the economy in a way that was optimistic, given that it's an interesting time. We see like very low unemployment, lowest unemployment in 50 years, a ton of job growth. And yet I think because of the after effects of inflation, persistently Biden's polling on the economy and people's sort of general feeling of how are their financial situations has been pretty low. So I think they were glad that he took the opportunity to deliver a message of economic optimism. And what about the lone Republican in the Nevada delegation, Mark Amaday? He didn't go. He didn't go to Biden's last one. He definitely skipped at least one in the Trump administration. He probably skipped more. I'd have to check. But I don't think he's a big fan of state of the unions. And he just said he thinks they're full of a lot of grandstanding and political theater. That was kind of what he insinuated to me and that it wasn't really worthwhile, which, you know, there is plenty of grandstanding and political theater. So, 
Yeah, well, and so when when Biden was talking about all this stuff, what are, what are these topics that he was talking about really have a significant and notable impact on Nevada here? Yeah, I think the biggest one for me is all the green energy stuff. Nevada is really poised to capitalize on that. There's no existing like oil or gas or coal industry that could be displaced. And so it's really just opportunity. And I think Governor Lombardo has recognized this as well because he's been showing up at several of these announcements, the Tesla announcement of investment in electric vehicle manufacturing. And then yesterday, the Redwood Materials announcement that the Department of Energy is giving a $2 billion loan for lithium battery recycling and production. And so I think this is an area in which both the governor and the president are aligned in creating and building out this green energy economy. And so I think for Nevada, that's a really big deal because Nevada is the only state with an operating lithium mine. That's a huge deal for electric vehicle production. All right, Gabby. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today and appreciate all your reporting. I'm sure we'll hear more from you soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. And before we read you the credits like usual, we wanted to let you know that we are going to be making some changes to the show come March. And don't worry, we're not going anywhere and we're still going to be bringing you weekly content but we wanted to try and mix things up a bit so that you, the audience, can be better informed and entertained. So keep an ear out for that next month. Now on with the credits. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Michelle Rundells and Tom Tate. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, Ismay, June Pearson, Tom Fox, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>